Hey guys, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Wild True Talk. How are you guys doing? Finally, I am back. I'm excited. I am reinvigorated. I mean, it's been a very long time since I've posted an episode. But as you may know, maybe you have listened the last sort of update that I posted in here. If you didn't, please check it out. Long story short, no time and no topics that would have been interesting in any ways to to, to bring here. But in today's episode, I'm very excited for this one as it's been very interesting to research. We are going to talk about Huawei. Huawei, which is a still is a giant when it comes to any sort of information technology development area or field, which has been uh, under the spotlight in the past few years due to concerns and whatnot, but we are going to tackle that later on in this episode. So in today's episode, we're going to discuss the rise and fall of Huawei, China's largest telecommunication company. Let's crack this open and let's begin. So let's start with a little bit of a history about a company itself. So Huawei did not start for many people, I think around Europe mostly, they've started to hear about Huawei thanks to their phones, thanks to the mobile business. But Huawei actually at its core started and still is a telecommunications company, um, meaning that Huawei dabbles in everything regards to um, networking equipment, routers, switches, so on and so forth. So Huawei was founded in 1988 by, I'm, I'm going to probably butcher this name, Ren, Ren, Ren Shengfei, a former deputy director of the PLA, China's People's Liberation Army, which is basically China's, China's army, just to put it out there. And the company started by reverse engineering and building telephone exchange switches to modernize China's poor network infrastructures. We're talking about the late 80s, the early 90s. China was not the technological powerhouse that it is today. And I'm probably guessing that the reason why China became a large IT market and a big technology player in the past 30 years, 40 years, is thanks to Huawei. So on top of that, they started doing this reverse engineering and building telephone exchanges, but on top of that, they were selling phone branches exchange systems or PBXs, which are not a thing anymore, um, which were brought in from Hong Kong. So they were basically bringing in foreign equipment routed it from Hong Kong, get it into China and just use it from there and sell it from there. And the main reason why Huawei was founded was to create a national telecommunications company in order to take over the entire Chinese telecommunication infrastructure, which was mainly by the time built using firm equipment, probably mostly, I'll probably say American and uh, Soviet slash Russian equipment. That was the start of the um, 
of Huawei as a company. Uh, they started in the telecommunications department. They started by building anything in regards to network network equipment from the consumer routers, um, which personally I do have. I do have a Huawei LTE modem that runs everything in the house and basically anything in along those lines. By the mid 1990s though, Huawei started focusing, well not focusing, but mostly started to turn their eyes abroad. So they started expanding. Uh, by the mid 1990s, Huawei started expanding and striking telecommunication deals abroad in countries such as Canada, UK, Australia, and Europe. And by the early 2010s, so it took about 15 to 20 years, Huawei had worked with over 80% of the world's 50, uh, the world's top 50 telecom companies. So the footprint that Huawei still has today is massive. So the beginning of Huawei was just telecommunications um, and they got their way from there. And um, most countries are still involved and I'm guessing most of countries, most of like most of the world's telecommunication infrastructure and network infrastructure at the moment is run by Huawei equipment. So there is that. And um, they were a big deal already back in the day, not even with the whole smartphone business. But in 2003, Huawei founded its mobile division and they started selling um, cheap handsets uh, low-end market, just to sort of flood the low-end market. I mean, by um, by 2004, well, they started shipping their first handsets, and it's the mid-2000s, so we're not, you're still not into the boom of the smartphone industry. Uh, it's it will still take a few years, three years before the before Apple announced the iPhone and before the whole smartphone gold rush era began. But by the early 2010s, Huawei started to use a sort of, kind of like a guerrilla kind of, um, not, not really, but just, just to, I would say, just to garner a foothold in the, mostly in the European market. Um, Huawei started just to sell, to ship and sell low-end budget smartphones to basically be a gateway uh, getaway inside the Android smartphone world. So with that sort of tactic, they've kind of hooked people into, you know, buying other, um, other, other, like other gadgets, other smartphones. And maybe the more, you know, the more people got involved, the, uh, the, 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 the more likely the next purchase of their smartphone would be something a bit more powerful, something maybe in the mid-range, maybe a flagship phone, you know. So with that and a pretty heavy marketing campaign, Huawei became a giant player in the, mostly in the European and, um, well, Chinese market, but the Asian market and the Chinese market are completely different. They have different needs. They're not the, the the way that like in some cases there are different models that are shipped in uh, in Europe 
and in China or in Asia in general. So, so on top of that, you know, like Huawei started also to imp to export their Chinese models into the European market, and by then the the the, the American market in terms of smartphone was not. I wouldn't say that it wasn't a big issue. I wouldn't say that uh, it was a, it was a priority for Huawei. They like the focus on the U.S. market in terms of like smartphones was really minimal. So it was, but still is nowadays very hard to find a Huawei device uh, in in the U.S. Uh, well, we will get that. Like you know what happened. We will get that. We will get to that in a bit. But like. The European market is their was their baby in a way. Uh, they just sort of uh, ruptured into it, and they have become a big player. So much so that uh, Huawei started to push in the market in the European market their new flagship line, the P series, which still is currently their flagship market today. Uh, Starting in twenty fifteen with a P eight, and then moved on to become the one of the big uh, smartphone series um, in the market nowadays the latest I think is the P40 and they had branding deals and collaboration deals with uh, big players in, in in some kind of fields including Leica the um, the, the photography uh, lens like the photography giant that it was Leica and also they have uh, had a design collaboration with Porsche Design uh, to build some one-of-a-kind um, top-of-the-line uh, P40, P, no, sorry, P-series smartphones, which are more expensive than the average P smartphone, but they are more expensive because they're more of a luxury item uh, because there's this collaboration between Huawei and Porsche. So that's that's mostly catered to the luxury smartphone kind of deal and in 2013 huawei founded honor a sub brand which is kind of the kind of the thing nowadays with chinese companies they most of the chinese companies now have like sub brands to sort of divide and conquer in a way um the same case can be said by can, can be said with xiaomi uh by having the uh, Poco brand, like the Poco uh, brand, the Redmi brand, Oppo has its own a Realme brand. Um, so there is uh, there is that, like it's a Chinese thing to have sub brands. Uh, but Huawei founded Honor, a sub brand focusing on, focused on making mid range slash high end high end smartphones at a competitive price, starting in the same market bracket as companies such as. OnePlus, and if you have not heard of OnePlus, I would highly suggest you to check out my episode called My Relationship with OnePlus, because I am a OnePlus user. Still am. Uh, I, I was, I am still am, but I might not be in the future. Maybe. Let's see. So, everything was going fine for the company. I mean, astounding growth in both the telecommunication division, the mobile division, um, they were starting to build their own like cloud and IoT systems um, to push to to consumers, privates, businesses, whatnot. So this is uh, basically the high point for Huawei. Uh, if we're talking about smartphone shares, 
by 2019, a fifth of the smartphones sold in the world for Huawei. Huawei had a 20% market share in the not only in the in the Android um, in the Android smartphone market, but in the entire smartphone market. So Apple included. So they were basically second behind Samsung in the Android business. Then they overtook Samsung by late 2019 to become the largest Android smartphone manufacturer and uh, seller in a way, um, the largest smart, uh, Android smartphone brand, second to Apple, which it would, which is insane. So that story, you know, moving starting out as a as a local telecommunications network company, well, they struck a deal with the Chinese government. So uh, there was this sort of favoritism kind of thing between Huawei and the Chinese government. By now, Huawei is basically China's national, national, sorry, China's national telecommunications uh, equipment provider and probably China's telecommunication, China's own biggest national telecommunications company, without a doubt. Well, when things were on the high, basically that we're talking about late 2019, well, sorry, late 2018, early 2019, mid 2019, Huawei was there. They were taking it on. They were trying to take it on into, their next step was taking into, they were taking it onto Apple and become the largest smartphone uh, manufacturer in the world. But the world and many, many other people, many, many governments, especially the US government, had other plans. By 2018, actually, a new law was signed by the Trump administration, the John S. McCain National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2019, which blacklisted Chinese 5G network equipment companies, including ZTE, which is also a smartphone company, and Huawei over espionage concerns. Well, let's focus a second about this espionage concerns thing. China, the way China works, well, we don't really know how China works unless you have been inside China. In case you are interested in um, in the inner workings of China, like living in China as a, as a foreigner, I would suggest you to go on YouTube and look for two people, two YouTubers, two great YouTubers, Serpent ZA and LaoY86. Uh, these two guys lived in China for over a decade, but they have defected and they moved back to the, they moved to the US actually, um, Serpent ZA is uh, originally from South Africa. He moved from South Africa to China, stayed there for a decade. And then when the situation in China felt more overwhelmed, more overwhelming, they just defected sort of, they moved back, they moved to the US. So both of them are stationed in the US, but they're following China, the Chinese news. Uh, they have been, inside the whole like the Chinese society. So they are they, they know more than I do in a way. But what I know about Chinese companies, Chinese technology companies, is that they are required by Chinese law to have a backdoor system that would allow the Chinese government to siphon data or to be able to just crack open a, a phone in case of criminal uh, activity involved and whatnot, which in China's case can be 
anything in regards to uh, being disloyal to the regime, uh, being a dissident, which are kind of the same thing, but also be able to siphon data in regards to intellectual properties and uh, corporate espionage, because in China there is no intellectual property protection law, meaning that people can copy pretty much anything. I mean, back in the day, in the early 2010s, I remember the barrage of iPhone clones that were coming out of China. Uh, why? Because they were taking Apple's um, designs, patents, and whatnot. And since in China there is no, as I said, intellectual sorry intellectual property protection law, they were allowed to copy anything. I mean, their their the beginning of the Chinese auto automotive market started by was started was kickstarted by people copying. Uh, designs from other car manufacturers. That's how it started. And now, uh, in terms of the automotive market, China has a big company called Geely, which has, which bought shares into companies such as Lotus, uh, a British uh, sports car manufacturer, and Volvo, the, the one of the biggest. Um, and most innovative car manufacturers in the world, which is actually from Sweden. So here I can see a lot of Volvos, but I'm digressing. Back into the um, backdoors thing. Yeah, uh, that was the main concerns. And they, I could say that it's not that, um, let's say it's understandable uh, because Maybe one day the Chinese government on a whim might decide to siphon data from um, US companies to just, you know, gain advantages or to get a hold of new intellectual properties, reverse engineer and whatnot. Because, well, it's been a while, but there is this trade war between China and the US, which <laughs> it's not going to end anytime soon, I'm afraid. By June 2020, the Federal Chamber of Commerce, so the FCC, has deemed Huawei a threat to national security due to these espionage concerns. And a few months later, by November 2020, former U.S. President Donald Trump signed Executive Order 13959, an order which, I quote, prohibits all U.S. investors institutionals and retail investors alike from purchasing or investing in securities of companies identified by the U.S. government as, quote, communist Chinese military companies. And one of these companies was Huawei. Huawei was uh, being sort of, well, it was already blacklisted um, by, the, by the U.S. Uh, by the U.S. government uh, as a uh, as a military company uh, in the NDAA of uh, 2019. So that means in that means in layman's terms that no US-based companies can do business with Huawei. And now many people will be like, what is the big deal about this? If you're not into tech, and that might be a good question, but if you're into tech like me, if you're more tech savvy and you know your way around and you have been, you know, you know how things work. Here's how this 
executive order affects Huawei. Starting with, well, their smartphone business, their smartphone market, their smartphone division, their phone division, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So Huawei, Huawei smartphones run Android. And you'll be like, okay, Android is an open source uh, operating system. That's true. But what runs on top of uh, Android nowadays is services, applications, uh, drivers, you name it, developed, licensed, and shipped by Google, which is an American company situated, it said headquarters are located in Mountain View, California, United States of America. So Huawei and Google cannot work together anymore, which means that Huawei smartphones cannot access Google applications, uh, your Gmail, your YouTube, and most importantly, it cannot access the, uh, they cannot like use the Google Play Store. And you will be like, okay, fine, I can just, if I'm tech savvy like you, I can just like, you know, install the APKs for me, uh, which is the, like the Android, like the package application for Android uh, from a third party, um, from a third party uh, app store. No, isn't it? Yeah, but no. Why? Because you need to run Google Play services in order to run Android applications properly. So some Android apps, well, some Android apps do not need Google Play services all the time, but um, I'll probably say 80% of the um, of the play of the of the applications in the Play Store do have a certain degree of connection to the Google Play services. So, which means that either you run without Android apps, or if you're if you're tech savvy, you know if you know what you're doing and you want to waste some time you probably need to sideload the apps, the, the Google Play services and the apps from your phone and that requires looking to bootloader. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there is a XDA guide, like a guide on XDA uh, on how to sideload uh, Google Play services on Android smartphones nowadays. But what happens is that after this executive order came into, uh, into fruition, New hundred new uh, Huawei smartphones are now what are known as the Google smartphones, meaning that they're not running uh, any Google applications or Google Play services. So Huawei, on top of that, needed to port a ton of applications. First, they needed to create their own um, alternative to Google Play stores, which are called Huawei mobile services, uh, and they are they have their own app store called the Huawei App Gallery. But nowadays the issue is that there are not too, there are not so many apps uh, inside the app gallery that are running HMS instead of Google Play services. So it's a little bit of an issue. Uh, well, yeah, uh, for many customers, especially your average consumers, it will it is a pretty big deal because you are not allowed to you know download proper uh, Google applications. Maybe uh, you're not allowed to play your games. You're not allowed to use your your Facebook, your Netflix, your YouTube, because, well, they cannot even make business with Huawei as they are also American companies, which means that they cannot do business with Huawei. Plain and simple. Also, well, 
Huawei runs a also a um, laptop division, so they have their own line of laptops called the MateBooks. Pretty uh, pretty cool play on the MacBook train thingy, uh, and they're pretty much like sort of your premium high-end ultrabooks. Um, now, uh, pretty meh, uh, in my opinion, but uh, they for components they had deals with companies such as Intel, Nvidia. AMD, Qualcomm. So what happens is that now thanks to this executive order, Huawei cannot do business with any of these companies. So the components for the MateBooks, they they need to build them in-house. Well, it's not an issue for them because well, Huawei has been using their own silicon for a while, especially in the smartphone, like for their smartphones. Huawei now run a a line of chipset SOCs called the Kirin series. Uh, I'm guessing it's a it's a reverse engineered uh, architecture. It's a reverse engineered version of a Qualcomm Snapdragon. Probably started from there. Um, so in terms of architecture as well, Qualcomm is an ARM-based processor. So they cannot even make deals with ARM to because ARM is a British company, uh, but it has ties with the U.S. So ARM decided to cut ties with Huawei, so ARM cannot even like provide the schematics to build the, their own, like to, to improve and develop their own uh, Kirin line of processors for smartphones. So they kind of have to do everything from scratch at the moment. And before September 15th, 2020, Huawei started stockpiling on components and semiconductors, meaning that now they have about two and a half million components lying around in their in their um called in their warehouses ready to you know ready to be assembled and to build like things like to build devices but Huawei's phone demand has been dropping significantly well why because the appeal is that there are no Google Play services which means no applications run so you're kind of stuck with that but that ties into what I'm going to be talking about the next episode, which is the current semiconductor shortage. It's for the next episode. I'm just going to leave it at here. But there are still a few things that I need to discuss. But so next episode, you know what I'm going to talk about. But by 2021, what does the future hold for Huawei? So we've gone through pretty much a summed up version of Huawei's history and what's been happening with them. But what does the future hold for the company? Well, nobody knows, but I have pinpointed a few points that Huawei will probably focus on in the next few years, starting with Harmony OS slash Arc Arc OS slash Hongmeng OS, which is Huawei's own microkernel which they're like their vision for Harmony OS is to make it a giant operating system that can tie in with anything that Huawei makes, um, from smartphones to wearables to laptops to even embedded systems such as like your IoT, meaning your smart speakers, smart fridge, you name it. So 
they it is already a thing it is it exists already it's been launched with the p40 series so if you have a, a huawei p40 you have access to the harmony s microkernel nowadays it's still a microkernel but they're planning to build a their own kernel probably based on uh, on linux of course because it's open source so there's that but their plan is to make it a one size fit all OS for anything that Huawei makes to build their own sort of ecosystem, kind of like Apple did uh, back in the day, and which is probably the best example of how an ecosystem should be run. Let's not talk about that now. I digress. So that's probably one of the main focuses of Huawei at the moment. The next big focus will probably be a development and just a returning to the Chinese market. Um, well, the Chinese market, it's ultra competitive when it comes to handsets, uh, devices in general, network communication. Well, network communications, it's not a big problem because Huawei already holds pretty much uh, the entire Chinese network infrastructure, so no big deal. But they are probably trying to focus on their mobile division and just push the mobile division into the Chinese market, regaining their 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 foothold and just becoming the number one um, smartphone provide smartphone manufacturer in China. Um, the the easiest thing for them is that in China their the the lack of you know the lack of proper ties with U.S. based companies does not sort of does not does not assist with them because. In China, smartphones do not run Google Play services, so there is no problem for that. Um, there are there's no need for uh, people to have um, to run on Facebook, like to to use uh, applications such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Netflix, and whatnot. They have their own internal services like Weibo and Baidu and uh, whatever. I, I I don't know, but like they have their own services, so. It makes sense because they don't they have minimal effort but they can push they can push a lot then they're probably going to develop it's a thing that many tech companies are starting to roll into uh to basically become a system as a service uh provider uh sorry service as a service provider meaning that you are paying subscription fees to uh, access services, the thing that uh, Apple has been starting to do with their Apple Arcade, Apple TV Plus, and I'm thinking that Huawei is starting to go to into that route and just starting to uh, push that sort of services into the Chinese market. Of course, in the Western markets, it's much more hard. It's a, it's a harder of a sell because well, you don't have you don't have access to U.S. based companies and content so it's much more hard uh, in a way to to sell this sort of services into the western market then they're pushing into the business sector into cloud and iot infrastructures um well from what i remember uh, i know that uh, a few um, western companies are running services in china uh using huawei's cloud cloud company like cloud service so there is that, and I'm pretty sure that Huawei is involved in networking deals with 
third world countries, meaning mostly Africa and uh, uh, countries in the uh, in the southeast of Asia, so in developing nations. But that's more not more a a push from Huawei, but more as a push for from the Chinese government just to uh, gain a foothold in the market and just just unleash their soft power within uh, these nations. That's a thing. That's a tech. That's a a practice that China has been using for quite some time. So there is that, and these were the points that I think Huawei is going to develop in the future. But with that said, that is pretty much where I'm going to end up this episode. I thank you so much for listening, and I thank you so much for holding up this whole time. <laughs> I'm back, and I'm going to be back on the regular. So yeah, thank you for listening, and as always, I will hear from you in two weeks with a brand new episode. And as I mentioned, next episode, we're going to talk about the current semiconductor shortage, how it happened, what's the, what's, what's the take from it, and where are we going from here. So thank you for listening, and I will talk to you in two weeks. And until then, have a good one.